Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant, and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. Hope you're having a nice weekend. Later, we'll hear from some candidates as we're days away from the early voting in the Kentucky primary. But first, as we approach the summer months, there is hope in Lexington that gun violence won't climb the way it did last year. The city-sponsored program One Lexington continues to roll out initiatives and points out youth violence numbers are down. But in the last week, an 18-year-old was found dead in a Lexington Park from gunshot wounds and last year May was the deadliest month in modern Lexington history with 11 homicides. Divine Karama is a Lexington native who became a rap performer and an advocate for peace in the city. He now heads up One Lexington which works with several partners to push initiatives. Divine, thanks for coming. We appreciate no you. No problem. Always. Thank you, Bill. Uh, so here we are. The numbers uh, for 2023 seem down substantially when it comes to uh, gun deaths in Lexington. Yeah. But some in neighborhoods say they still hear gunfire regularly. Uh, and as we face summer, the concerns always go up. Right? Definitely, definitely. Uh, historically, we always see kind of a bump in violence during the summer months. Um, a, a lot of our control spaces are closed, um, i.e. the school system. There's a lot more idle time. And so um, obviously coming out of the pandemic, the first two summers were really, really rough. Um, and a lot of those fail safes um, were down. Um, but we feel this year, everything is open. Um, we feel we got a lot more structure in place through One Lexington and our community partners. And we got a lot of hope, not just going into May, but for the summer, because over half of our homicides last year were between the months of May and September. And so right now the numbers are down, um, but we're staying vigilant um, because we know we got a long summer ahead of us. Where are those numbers right now? So. Last year we were at about, we were at 14 homicides at this time of the year. 2021 we were at 15 homicides, the majority of those gun related. Um, this year um, we're at five homicides and so we are substantially down and only two of those fall in the, the age purview of youth and young adults. And so even though we're down, um, our work is still heavy because there's still lost loved ones. And as you mentioned in your opening, um, there's still too many guns on the street. There's still too many shots being fired in neighborhoods. And so even though the shooting numbers and homicide numbers are coming down, there's still a lot of work to be done and we're committed. What is it you want to see change out there, yeah. uh, you know, in the neighborhoods, in the, in the communities uh, in Lexington? Yeah, a lot. Um, I definitely want to see the culture change for our young people. I think there's a, a, a normalcy um, to gun violence, whether it's the mass shootings happening abroad, whether it's the amount of guns that are on the street. There's a glorification of gun culture um, through music, through social media um, that I think is really impacting our young people. I want to see mental health um, being talked about a little bit more. Um, there's a lot of people out there who are in the cycle of violence um, that are dealing with untreated trauma. Um, and we know that there's evil out there. There's bad folks out there. But there's also a lot of folks who are dealing with depression, dealing with mental health issues, dealing with trauma that's been untreated. And that has to become kind of the metronome of everything that we do in this work. Do you think they know how to reach out and are there resources available if they do reach out? I think that's the structure that I think we need to get better on. And I do think the city is stepping up. I think our community partners are stepping up. I think um, our peer support programs are stepping up. And I think these young people are a little bit more comfortable in talking about mental health than even we were. Right. So I think that that does create kind of this 
this uh, soil, fertile soil for us to go in and really minister to some of the untreated trauma that we're seeing. So I think we're on the right track. You speak of these uh, of a holistic approach uh, yeah. really throughout the community. There was recently a put the guns down initiative. In that case, families of victims uh, spoke out. Is that effective? Definitely, it's the only way we're going to see progress. Um, to look at this issue as um, one person or one organization or one initiative is the completely wrong way to look at it. Um, there are root causes to the violence that we are seeing. So the only way to attack the root causes is to hit it from all angles, and that's what we're doing. Whether it is survivors of gun violence who have lost loved ones speaking out, it's preventative measures going into the schools, going into the jails, it's housing, it's mental health. It's all of these things lead to gun violence. And so we got to focus on all of it in order to see continued progress. Another event of this last week, 100 black men of Lexington United. Uh, you got a, a group of folks together to, to talk about uh, a role they can play. Yes, and, and that is huge, right? Intentionality is important. Um, the majority of those being impacted by gun violence, unfortunately, are African Americans or people of color within this community. Many of our young people who are in that cycle of violence are young black men. So they need to see people that they can identify with that can speak life into them and hopefully turn their life around. And so I think it is important for all of us to be involved, but especially our black men to step up and figure out ways that they can serve and to come together in fellowship and, and figure out ways that they can work together moving forward. Another of your uh, efforts has been called It Takes a Village. It's a mentoring program of seventh graders working with second graders in some <laughs> cases. Yeah. How important is a program like that? Huge. That's the prevention piece. Um, intervention is important. That's once violence has already happened, you're intervening to see how you can stop it. But we're going to stay here. We're going to be here in another 10, 20 years if we don't focus on prevention. And I think when you catch them young and you pour life into them, um, I think that's the most effective tool to reducing gun violence. And to see seventh graders take a leadership role and pour into the second graders, that lets them know what they are capable of at a, at a young age. And so it's been one of our most impactful programs that we do through the school year, but also through the summer. In those cases, I mean, do you encourage uh, the older students to, to talk specifically about these problems or is it just, you know, be a friend and be an example? I think it starts there because I think some of these issues may be a little too heavy for yeah. first or second graders, but we also know that um, this generation um, tends to move a little quicker than we did. And so um, I think just being a friend, being a positive role model, seeing somebody that they resonate with a little more than, you know, a guy that's got grays in his beard, I think um, has a different kind of impact um, on both sides. Again, as you come at this from various angles, uh, there was recently an expungement clinic uh, in mm. Lexington. How key are second chance initiatives? Huge, huge, and the data is out there. When you talk about people who have been incarcerated, we yell and we scream at them to find a new pathway, say stay out of the life of crime, out of the cycle of violence. But how arrogant is it of us as a society to say, hey, we don't want you to do this, but we're not gonna give you another pathway. 
Things like expungement clinics, second chance job fairs are providing that alternative pathway for some people who may have never known another path other than a life of crime. Maybe they were doing it just to survive. And so um, Tiffany Brown, who also works in the mayor's office, she's the implementation officer, is focusing on these issues that we protested about in 2020 that I, I feel like a lot of people have forgotten about. And some of those disparities, those inequities that we marched about in 2020 are some of the root causes of the gun violence that we're seeing. So we definitely work with her and things like expungement clinics. So many families that we work with were actually there and talked about how it was life-changing for them. Another issue, Lexington is seeing about 400 evictions a month. Uh, an eviction can last, a person can be denied housing in the future because they have an eviction on their record. Yes. Uh, sometimes it's families. And uh, now there is some focus from the city on a program to provide legal representation. Uh, so at least they have uh, you know, some counsel when, when they yeah. go into to the, to the court. Does that uh, sort of initiative help someone avoid a spiral? No question. I mean, it's all about choices and opportunity. And when we're talking about people who are already um, robbing Peter to pay Paul or already living check to check, um, they're losing opportunity. They're losing choices when they get an eviction because now they're not only losing that home, but it's going to hurt them from getting their next home. So how can the city step up? and help these individuals. And what I like with what the city is doing, it's not just money, um, but they're going in a little bit deeper. They're working with the judges because the judges kind of know the ins and outs of these um, specific situations. And so the judges are saying, here's what we're seeing. And so the city is saying, okay, how can we avoid families going into eviction? And so I think it is, they're going a little bit deeper and I like that. And I think it's an opportunity for our business community and nonprofit community to step up and plug in that gap because it's definitely a need. And we definitely see the impact on our work. Divine, how difficult is it for you to walk the tightrope that you have to walk? Uh, you, you know, you, you are yeah. working for the city, yeah. but you're trying to represent the community in, in, in various ways and, and, and yeah. be able to talk to everybody. Yeah. It can't be an easy thing to do. Not at all. Um, somebody told me when we were in the height of an election season last year, gun violence was spiraling. Um, somebody told me that in order to be a bridge, um, a bridge gets walked on from both sides. You know, that's just part of the game. And so my focus will always be the people. Um, and if I focus on the people, focus on my faith, um, I can live with the results. Um, I can live with the comments made on both sides. Um, I believe I'm exactly where God wants me to believe or be. I believe I'm doing the work that I was born to do. Um, and at the end of the day, I can live with the results as long as I'm giving the people my all. And I feel like I work for a mayor who does the same thing. And so it's definitely difficult, but at the end of the day, it's worth it because I know it's purpose-driven work. You've often talked about growing up in Lexington. That yeah. was a, a different place and a different time, uh, certainly. Definitely. And uh, w when you look at the things that, that happen in other places, and, you know, we've had uh, the mass shootings in Nashville and Louisville and the other uh, violence that, that, that we see, how do you get the message out there that, you know, let that be where it is and l let's focus on what we can do here? That, that has been what we've been um, saying um, from the summer of 2021. Um, when people mention um, the possibility of bringing a GVI, a program into Lexington, or people talk about what's going on in Louisville and other cities, 
for us, we understand that Lexington is a unique place. And so it's got its own unique problems and there has to be a unique local approach. We can use evidence-based stuff that works around the country, but we also have to keep in mind the uniqueness and the beauty of what makes Lexington, Lexington. And there are certain things that are working in other places that might not work here and vice versa, but you gotta be of the city. You gotta be on the ground. You gotta, um, this has to be your home to truly understand that. These flock cameras have been controversial. Uh, what's yeah. your take? My take is it's whatever the people say. Um, and a lot of the people and the families that we work with like the flock cameras. Um, we've also had a few people that are concerned with them being in communities of color in a high concentration, and I completely understand that. Um, but I think the flock cameras are following the data. It's where the crime is. And so um, the people that we serve overwhelmingly want the flock cameras. Um, I guess my only reservation and concern is as long as um, the city and the police department is being transparent and open and honest about the flock cameras, which it seems like they are, you know, from the beginning. Um, I, I think whatever um, helps keep the community safe, um, one Lexington is all for it, as long as it's not jeopardizing the people. What are your best hopes for this summer? What will you be doing to try to ensure that uh, things remain safe? Yes, um, we don't want to lose anybody this summer, obviously, but our real realistic goals is to see the homicides um, be cut in half um, this summer, but really we don't want anybody to lose their lives. Um, all hearts on deck is kind of what we're calling the movement. So we got summer programming. We got a lot of trauma informed support groups for youth coming this summer. Um, I believe the, the summer job program through Partners for Youth has exploded with participation this year. And so it's just everybody being active, um, everybody loving and putting their arms around our young people and just not being afraid to say not again, not this year, not our community. And that's our hope. Thank you for coming, as always. We appreciate, appreciate it very it. Thanks, much. Bill. Back in just a moment, we'll hear from some of the candidates for governor in that Republican primary that's crowded. We're back on Kentucky Newsmakers with that in a moment. Welcome back and thanks for being on WKYT. Over the last few weeks here on Kentucky Newsmakers, we've interviewed several of the candidates running in that crowded Republican primary for governor. This morning, some snippets from some of those conversations with Alan Keck, Mike Harmon, Ryan Quarles, Kelly Kraft, and Daniel Cameron. You've been officially running for governor for a few months now, uh, but obviously you don't have the, the name recognition statewide that some yeah. of the candidates do, uh, nor the money to run the ads that uh, particularly one candidate has, uh, has been doing. Do you think you're on the radar as a viable option for Republican voters in that May primary? I certainly think so. You know, we're out talking to Kentucky voters who, like me, have a, a truck payment. They've got a mortgage. Uh, they understand the challenges that we're going through, and we understand that. Uh, we're listening uh, to their concerns just like we did in Somerset. And so I absolutely think we're in the game, we're on the radar, and you know, other candidates are starting to notice our platform and perhaps cherry pick a little bit of it, and so I know they're paying attention to what we're doing too. How important, you said you're listening, how important is that? What are you learning? Because you're doing town halls uh, this week, you were in Ashland, you've been uh, all over the state, right? Well, the best leaders listen to understand, not just respond, and that's been a 
lost art uh, for politicians for many, many years. Uh, the issues are different across the state, uh, but the one thing I continue to hear about is this workforce crisis. Uh, you know, folks that are working hard to make ends meet don't have as many people working alongside of them, and then employers are desperate for help. And as you know, Kentucky has been near the bottom in America in workforce participation, and we're bringing real solutions to that issue. Before I dive right into issues, I do want to ask you, tell sure. us a little bit about your background and what brought you to the mayor. You grew up in Somerset, I right? Did, and yeah. what, what was your path to the mayor? Well, like, like you, native southern eastern Kentucky right. guy, and I'm a business person. You know, my father was an entrepreneur, like his father, like his father. So I'm a fourth generation businessman, and I love the private sector. I love capitalism, where going to work every day, you have the opportunity to, to change your life or someone else's, uh, create and share wealth. And I learned a lot in my private life. And as I looked at running for mayor, the, the, the genesis was I saw a town that had so much potential a city that I knew wasn't reaching that potential and I wanted to unleash it. I wanted to build a team that would sort of captivate imagination, that would tell our own story, that unique Kentucky story and we've done that. Uh, as mayor we've accomplished an incredible amount and it, it left a lot of folks asking, Mayor, why is this not happening across Kentucky? And it left me wondering what would our Commonwealth look like if it was happening in 40, 50, 60 cities. You got into this race back in the summer before uh, anybody else. July uh, of 2021, uh, actually. Well, well, let's go back. Yeah. A year and a half yeah. you've been yeah. running. That's right. Yeah. And uh, you've been making the rounds, including a, a debate recently. Yes. You were sharing with me your uh, travel schedule for this week. Yes. And it is intense. It I is mean, very intense. You are on the move. Are you? Uh, do you think you're getting anywhere on this race? I really do. I mean, I really think we're gaining traction everywhere we go uh, you know people receive us very well uh, you know I've talked to people after the debate you know a lot of people thought I did it exceptional in the debate uh, I feel like that we're seeing some nuances there's a lot of similarities between the candidates that are in there currently but there are some distinctions as well and so uh, I think some of that's coming out and uh, we're going to do what we've always done is uh, surprise people my wife always says my superpower is people underestimate me and we look forward to doing that Kraft has a lot of money to, she does. to spend in the election Cameron has a lot of name identification as the Attorney General yes. uh, how do you overcome that well part Part of it is, is like I said, we just go out and, and we crunch it out. We talk to as many people as we can. You know, I shared with you, as you mentioned, uh, our schedule, going everywhere, uh, talking to people, and I tell everybody we're going to work like it's up to us. We're going to pray like it's up to God, and we're going to leave it in His hands. There is a theory that uh, some of the other candidates may chew each other up, and 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 it looks like maybe that's beginning right now. We're seeing these attacks between uh, Daniel Cameron and Kelly Kraft. Uh, are you in a position to? take advantage if Republican voters are turned off by some of the infighting in the primary? I think so, and it saddens me. And of course, I, I, I told a joke the other night when they asked me about the most, or the re most recent uh, pack. Uh, commercial against uh, Daniel Cameron. I said I could barely believe it if you remember the ad. It's actually right. had a, featured a bear, a grizzly bear. But you know, it, it saddens me a little bit to see, even though I may benefit from it, uh, it saddens me to see us tearing each other because when the primary's over, we've got to come together. I, I've, I've said from day one, you know, iron sharpens iron, but a house divided can't stand. Uh, and when the primary's over, we've all got to come together because we've got one goal, not just as Republicans, but as Kentuckians, that when the primary's over, 
we've got to make sure that Andy Bashir is a one-term governor. That has to be our goal. The interesting thing is you told me before we started this that you're enjoying this race. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's pressure every day. It's a lot of travel. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, difficult to face up to so many of these issues. What do you enjoy about it? I enjoy Kentucky. I love our state, love our commonwealth, and I love getting out traveling the rural back roads of Kentucky and meeting people and listening to them as well. As Ag Commissioner the last eight years, my job has been specifically promoting Kentucky Ag, working on rural issues from farming to rural uh, access to health care, etc. And so this, this time around, I'm enjoying it because I get to hear directly from the voters. And for me, as someone who grew up in a tobacco patch, I love getting down the road, talking to fellow Kentuckians. I'm just enjoying the experience and the opportunity. The legislature is uh, wrapping up. Some new laws will be on the books. The governor vetoed some, but signed most of what uh, was passed. Do you think this was a productive session of the Kentucky General Assembly? I think it has been. I think earlier in the session, a lot of folks were saying this is going to be uh, a low-key session, clean-up bills, technical bills. We had a couple agriculture-related bills get through the legislative process. But I do think that for a short session, 30-day session, a lot has gotten done. And one thing I want to do as a candidate for governor is work with the legislature. We've seen a record number of vetoes during the Andy Bashir administration, well over 80 at this point. We need a governor that respects the legislature. Uh, Andy Bashir is suing many members of the General Assembly. He's suing me right now over the Kentucky State Fair. It's a waste of time. And the way I was raised is that you should work with each other, find common ground, find common sense solutions, build consensus. And I want to be a governor that works at the legislature and doesn't sue them constantly. Well, the legislature fought with uh, Governor Bevin as well, who was a Republican. So, uh, <laughs> I think Kentucky needs an era of stability. Uh, it's been a long time since we've had a governor that had a really positive relationship with the General Assembly, and I think that's one reason why I've gained over 25 endorsements from members of the General Assembly, because they know that even though we may have disagreements, and that's okay, that's, that's fine, public policy making, we're not going to make it personal. Uh, that's the way my mom raised me. Let's do a wide open question first. Tell us about your background and, and why you decided that you want to be governor of the Commonwealth. You know, Bill, I'm from Barron County and I grew up on a farm. My father was a veterinarian, a veteran and a farmer. My mom was a home economics teacher and a stay-at-home mom. And you know, it's, it's in my family, as in most families, the most important piece of furniture was the kitchen table. And that's where I learned from watching my mom and dad a hard work ethic, you, know, you do right by your neighbor, and our very strong faith in God. And I firmly believe that it was those qualities and the time that I spent, you know, tirelessly working to make sure that we elected Donald Trump. It's why he appointed me to the uh, to be the first ambas female ambassador to Canada. Hopefully, not the last female where I negotiated the largest trade deal in America, United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. And then when Ambassador Nikki Haley resigned, he appointed me to the UN, which is where I helped negotiate the Abraham Accords for Israel, and also stood up to the Chinese Communist Party. So I realized, especially when I was you know, negotiating the trade agreement, that the benefits, that, that being able to create hundreds of thousands of jobs for the United States, preventing jobs from going into China and to Mexico, but it also allowed me to create jobs for Kentuckians, thousands of jobs, and to protect our family farms because it was so important before COVID with this agreement 
it allowed our family farms and our manufacturing industry to, ha to be on a level playing field and to have that digital. You know, it was mo mostly a digital upgrade. With former President Trump having appointed you twice to positions, uh, were you disappointed you did not get his endorsement in this race? You know, he didn't have to make a choice because I wasn't in the race. And there was no one who worked as hard as Joe and Kelly Craft to make certain that he was elected the first time and then again worked tirelessly for him and that's the reason he saw that work ethic that he appointed me to take on you know to rip up NAFTA he ran on that bill you remember yeah. and he needed somebody that he knew that could sit across the table and protect American interest and of course Kentucky. To those who may yet find it a surprise that you decided rather than run for Attorney General again, which you had the option to do, and instead run for governor, uh, what do you say? Why, why do you want to take this step? Well, because over the last three years, we've already been standing up for conservative values and the constitutional rights of our citizens. And when you come to determining who should help lead the Commonwealth, over the remainder of this decade, it needs to be somebody who has fought for our values and again fought for those constitutional rights and I've done that over these last three years. I've stood up to President Biden when he tried to force vaccine mandates on our state. Uh, I got went to federal court and got those stopped. I've stood up to uh, Governor Bashir when he tried to force our churches to shut down. I went to federal court and got those open after nine days. I brought in nearly $900 million to the state to fight the opioid uh, epidemic. Uh, and I continue to fight daily for the values of the men, women, and children of all 120 counties. I'm the only candidate that can say that uh, because of the work uh, that we've done over these last three years. How is it that you feel you're in a better position uh, to be governor and to mount a campaign against a, a popular Democratic incumbent, as the, as the polling will show you, uh, in the fall, and then be an effective governor? Well, I, the first question is uh, the difference between me and my opponents, and the, the, the contrast is clear. I have done the work of standing up for conservative values and constitutional principles over these last three years. The proof is in the pudding with me. Some folks in uh, this primary are running on ads. Uh, I'm running on a record. I'm running on a record of standing up to Joe Biden, I'm running on a record of standing up to uh, Governor Bashir. I'm under, on a, uh, running on a record of holding accountable the wholesalers, manufacturers, and distributors of opioids who exacerbated the epidemic that we have here. I'm running on a record. I'm the only candidate in this primary that can say that. And of course, I've been endorsed by Donald Trump because he recognizes that Kentucky needs a fighter, someone who reflects our values and our interests. Some of the Republican candidates for governor this year. Stay with us. We'll be back on Kentucky Newsmakers in just a moment. And we invite you to stay with WKYT as we cover the campaign and continue to bring you answers from the candidates right up until Election Day. Early no-excuse voting begins this coming Thursday and continues Friday and Saturday as the candidates will be on the move. And then all precinct locations will be open for the primary May 16th from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. local time. That's Kentucky Newsmakers. Thank you for joining us. Have a good week ahead.